Today, we'll bring you up to date on how to manage premenstrual dysphoric disorder and safe prescribing during pregnancy with a little help from Anita Clayton, MD. Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlite Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Last month, we attended the 9th Annual Mood Disorders Summit, and we tried to write down all the practice-changing nuggets they tossed into the virtual lecture hall, and we collected a lot from Anita Clayton. Dr. Clayton holds dual posts in the departments of psychiatry and OBGYN at the University of Virginia, where she is also the chair of the Department of Psychiatry. She updated us on premenstrual dysphoric disorder, peripartum, and perimenopausal mental health. Here, we're going to summarize those nuggets and expand on them a bit. First, let's clarify some lingo. Premenstrual dysphoric disorder is part of a broader syndrome called premenstrual syndrome. Both involve physical symptoms like bloating, fatigue, weight gain, breast tenderness, and headache. What makes premenstrual dysphoric disorder stand out is that the mood symptoms are more severe irritability, anxiety, and depression. Both syndromes occur at the same time, during the luteal phase, which starts with ovulation and ends with the period. For most women, the luteal phase is one to two weeks before their period. You know, it's very rare for me to see premenstrual dysphoric disorder in practice because it's hard to diagnose if the woman has another mood disorder, which most of mine do. The criteria requires that the disturbance, I love that, these are not just symptoms, they are a disturbance, is not merely an exacerbation of another disorder. I can only recall one case of premenstrual dysphoric disorder. It was a young woman who had very distinct mood symptoms and irritability in the two weeks before her cycle. Otherwise, she had no problems. But the disturbance was so severe that it was threatening her marriage. I did what the textbooks say. I prescribed an SSRI to take just during the luteal phase, but she got worse. She got manic on the antidepressant and more irritable. It turned out that her premenstrual symptoms were really an early sign of bipolar disorder. This was in my first year of practice, and at the time, all of the messaging on premenstrual dysphoric disorder was sponsored by the SSRI companies, and they left out an important fact. Premenstrual mood worsening is a soft sign of bipolarity. Around 30 to 75% of women with bipolar disorder experience worsening of their mood symptoms just before their menses. And bipolar disorder itself is three to five times more common in the PMDD population. One thing I did like about Dr. Clayton's lecture was that she didn't overemphasize the SSRIs. Not only is there the bipolar problem to worry about there, but many women with premenstrual symptoms prefer natural treatments. Dr. Clayton listed calcium, and there is also evidence for vitamin D. Both calcium and vitamin D levels drop in the luteal phase, and this drop is associated with premenstrual symptoms. The ovarian hormones that peak then, like estradiol, speed up the metabolism of vitamin D. 
Women whose diets are rich in calcium and vitamin D have fewer premenstrual symptoms. So the basic science is there, but what about clinical studies? Dr. Clayton recommended calcium, 1,200 milligrams a day, during the luteal phase, but did not mention vitamin D. And that's with good reason, because the studies on vitamin D are poor quality with a mix of positive and negative results. Calcium, though, is supported by a large randomized trial in premenstrual syndrome of over 400 women. All of the calcium studies involved premenstrual syndrome, not premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So calcium is a good place to start, but it might not be strong enough to treat the mood symptoms of genuine PMDD that shows up in a psychiatry office. We did find one study comparing calcium to fluoxetine Prozac in premenstrual syndrome, which it does involve mood syndromes as well as PMDD does. They're just not as severe. And in that study, the fluoxetine worked better than the calcium. Dr. Clayton also recommended vitamin B6 at 100 milligrams per day. The doses were all over the place, from 50 to 600 milligram daily in the studies, but it's best to stay below 200 milligrams per day, as that is the most conservative cutoff for the potential toxic effects, like neuropathy. Some studies used it daily throughout the month, and some prescribed it only during the luteal phase two weeks before menstruation. Most of the vitamin B6 studies are of small size and poor quality, but there are over a dozen of these controlled trials. Most were also in the milder premenstrual syndrome. It seems that vitamin B6 has better effects on the mood than the physical symptoms. Other natural approaches include CBT, yoga, mindfulness, and just about any stress reduction method. A healthy diet may also work, and there's a new study showing benefits with micronutrients, which are really just a healthy diet in a pill. Turning to medications, Dr. Clayton reminded us that only sertraline, Zoloft, fluoxetine, Prozac, and paroxetine, Paxil, are FDA-approved for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Some women take these SSRIs all month long, even if they only have symptoms during the luteal phase, and some just take them during the two-week luteal phase. And others simply raise their antidepressant during the luteal phase. That's a good strategy if they have comorbid major depressive disorder. And remember, in those cases, you're not going to diagnose PMDD Instead, you're just going to recognize worsening of the underlying disorder in the premenstrual phase. We recommend starting with fluoxetine because of its long half-life. That's going to prevent any withdrawal problems that might occur if it's used for two weak brief spurts. Fluoxetine also has the lowest risk of weight gain among the SSRIs. Dr. Clayton recommended low doses like 10 to 20 milligrams a day. But SSRIs are not the only FDA-approved option for PMDD. The oral contraceptive YAS is also approved. It's a monophasic combo of ethanol estradiol, 20 micrograms, with droseparinone, 3 milligrams. But most of us on the mental health side should defer to the OBGYN physician for that prescription. Dr. Clayton did not bring up black cohosh which is very popular and has some studies for premenstrual syndrome, but best to defer to the OBGYN for that one. 
Next, we turn to peripartum mood disorders, which used to be called postpartum back when doctors thought that the pregnancy glow would ward off all depression while the baby is in the womb. Not so. Depression is twice as common during pregnancy, at least by the time of the second trimester, as it is in the general population. And that brings us to the problem that can shake a clinician's nerves. What to do with the medications when your patient becomes pregnant? There are risks on both sides, but it's best to let go of your own anxieties around the issue and let the woman decide. Your job is to support her with the facts, and here they are. If she has mild non-recurrent depression, the risk of relapse is not particularly elevated, according to a 2020 meta-analysis. So she may be able to taper off the antidepressant. We'd suggest a two-week taper and add in some antidepressant activity like light exercise, stress reduction, and healthy diet. If she has a history of more than one episode, though, so recurrent depression or a history of severe depression, then the risk of relapse during pregnancy is much higher, about double if she comes off the antidepressant. If she had a history of postpartum depression, the risks are even higher still. And we have to weigh that against the risks that untreated depression poses to the infant. Most directly, they have higher rates of preterm delivery, low birth rates, and delayed developmental milestones. Then there are indirect risks, like women who have depression may be less likely to adhere to take care of themselves. We're talking poor nutrition, substance abuse, alcohol, and non-adherence with prenatal care. In terms of the risks of medication, it's the first trimester that we worry most about. That's when the major organs are developing and teratogenic malformations can occur. But only a few psych meds are associated with clear and relevant dangers that give us reason to avoid them in pregnancy. According to Dr. Clayton, those are paroxetine, Paxil, valproate, Depakote, lithium, carbamazepine, the tricyclic antidepressants, the benzodiazepines, and traditional stimulants like Ritalin and Adderall. I agree with that list, and it's one of the reasons I avoid paroxetine in practice, but the list doesn't give us much guidance for bipolar disorder, where continued treatment is almost always needed to avoid the high risk of destructive episodes that can occur around the peripartum period. In bipolar disorder, lamotrigine has the best evidence for safety during pregnancy. In fact, after Dr. Clayton's talk, a new large analysis of seizure medicines during pregnancy came out confirming this effect. And after lamotrigine, the atypical antipsychotics are surprisingly a close second. So what I'll do is I'll try to continue patients on just those and discontinue the others if they're planning pregnancy. But for about one in three people with bipolar disorder, lithium is uniquely effective. And there are newer papers out that have suggested that the risks with lithium are not as bad as once thought. We'll be back on the podcast in two weeks where we'll pick up there and talk about how to manage medications during pregnancy, minimize risks, and what exactly those risks are. If you missed the Mood Disorder Summit, catch it next September when they'll return to a real in-person conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. The conference will also be simulcast for a virtual audience 
and admission is free for all attendees. Earn your CME for this podcast through the link in the show notes, and we hope you'll join us in two weeks. In the meantime, follow Dr. Aiken on Twitter or LinkedIn. His handle is at ChrisAikenMD, where he's posted a new finding every day for the past six months. Today's study closes the door on a once promising trend. After an initial success, the novel antipsychotic Pimavanserin, Nuplazid, failed to deliver in two randomized controlled trials of antidepressant augmentation. 